Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for 27th of November 2013. I'm Steve Withers, and joining me this week is a slightly slimmed-down panel with games editor Mark Botwright. Haggis? What is Haggis? And audio reviewer Ed Selly. When only a few of us are left, we will feel an irresistible pull towards a faraway land to fight for the prize. Uh, right, let's get straight on to it, lads. Uh, hardware news, and I, I've written this down as L-Gate. I originally wrote LG-Gate, thought I'd be clever and say L-Gate. Basically, it's cock-up-gate. News broke last week, and it turned out that on LG TVs, now they monitor your viewing habits, which isn't unusual. Most TVs can do that. And often it's very useful because it means you can they can monitor what you're watching and then recommend things for you to watch you might like. Um, there is a, a option in the menu on their TVs to opt out of this if you don't want your information being sent back to LG for research purposes. Now, unfortunately, as it turns out, the TVs were still sending the information back even if you had opted out. Now, LG have come on uh, after the story broke and said, look, Sorry, that was a mistake. It was an accident. It shouldn't have happened. Um, our, our point of view, I think, and certainly Mark's story, you made a valid point, which is that surely it should be A, that you don't opt in, or rather, sorry, you don't opt out, but you should be allowed to opt in. Opt in. Uh, and secondly, obviously, if you do opt out, uh, it shouldn't be doing it. Um, yeah, it's been a slightly embarrassing week for LG, really, guys, hasn't it? It's awkward, but um, I'm afraid as a jaded, cynical and I don't know, perhaps someone who probably doesn't care about this as much as he should. If you don't want these things to send any of your data along, be it a smart TV, be it games console, be it some other device that, that is, is, is a data gatherer, don't connect it to the means of, of transmitting that information. Because I, I'm afraid I don't have any confidence that having made this very public apology and correction that actually it isn't still garnering information in some way shape or form it, you know my television downstairs isn't an lg i've got a panasonic but i have absolutely no doubt in my mind that um although i dare say the amount of data it's actually able to send back is very limited because the only actual thing on the television i use is netflix i have no doubt that it it is as well as netflix is is busy harvesting that data to work out what it is i'm doing and whether i'm actually a sane human being or just something that enjoys watching 80s reruns and you know that i i, I accept that as coming with the territory uh, maybe that makes me a bad person i don't know but isn't there a difference well i was just going to say there's there's kind of assuming that it comes with the territory and then there seems to be different levels of how much this this data is being used it's, it's the difference between someone stopping you in the street and asking you you know about a blind taste test or something and then someone ringing you up and saying they're going to use all your answers to sell to third-party companies and the like um, I think with this kind of thing, the trouble with with the idea of saying, well, you, you should have to opt in, it will just get hidden in a license agreement, which is, you know, automatically it will be there and then it'll, it'll you'll be back to the same stage, which is where's the opt out? True. I mean, I'm gonna give, I'll give LG the benefit of the doubt here and you know, say that uh, it was an accident. But I think what worried people was that, it, you know, it wasn't just monitoring your viewing habits in terms of what you were watching on, say, Netflix or, or on, on the TV itself. If you attach any kind of USB device to it, it was also going through all of that and reporting it back, which, you know, I mean, a bit like Ed, my, my view is that everyone's doing this to me all the time. Amazon, I mean, God knows how much about me Apple knows. Um, but I guess when it's shown to you in, in sort of harsh black and white terms, you suddenly realise just how little privacy we actually have left in the modern world. 
every now and again, Amazon actually scares me. Every now, every now and again, I don't know if anyone else gets this, but every now and again, there'll be all the kind of things which are, you know, I've browsed for before. Like there was a bunch of um, pens recently, and all of a sudden up popped this Jenga game, which I'd seen in a supermarket only the day before, and I picked up, and I'm just thinking, but I haven't searched for that online. I know I haven't. And, you know, suddenly you do start to get a little bit paranoid. I, I think I think me? Amazon know me better than my parents do. Frankly, they they they, they seem to know my. They recommend things to me with unerring accuracy. Uh, but you're right. Sometimes they come up with stuff. I think I don't even remember looking for that. That's clever. Uh, sometimes it's quite handy when something I didn't know was available is is you know recommended to me. But sometimes you do feel like yeah, you know, Big Brother is watching me, and Big Brother's you know a large retailer now. Yeah, but Christmas is brilliant for screwing with the Amazon predictor system because obviously it kind of had me down <laughs> pat. So, you know, I've been buying records every now and again. I still have to buy a CD and I buy camera things. And then today I've bought an uh, electronic fluffy dog that reads children's stories. And I have absolutely no idea what the computer is going to make with this information now. It's like because you looked at a Canon Prime lens and this animated dog, we've decided that you're mental and we're going to leave you well alone uh, it, it's brilliant and I, I haven't even really started on christmas shopping yet so i mean i've got to buy all sorts of stuff that otherwise i wouldn't go anywhere near and i'm sure it can make allowances for christmas and say actually that's a deviation of one off from the norm so on and so forth but it, i don't know about you guys but after i've done uh, a, a season so to speak all the way through spring, you'll get recommendations. You think, eh, yeah, I'll have a look at that. Or it's like, we noticed that you bought X. So here's a look at something <laughs> that you're never, ever going to have a look at ever again. Or well, because I, Ed, I spend my, yeah, go on. Uh, thanks to you, I've recently been recommended a lot of coats. <laughs> <laughs> well, what can I say? You, you might need a coat, Steve. And perhaps uh, Amazon's just looking at always the, have a good coat. Yes, the parlous state of your own wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit... Uh, bit threadbare i have to say well there you go you just need a nice nice le- actually no you don't you don't want an identical leather pea coat because that would just be weird if we have to go around the bristol show wearing the same same coat that would just be odd but you need a yeah, nice coat full stop okay so that's um that's us all being spied on by every manufacturer and retailer we can think of um i guess it's just part of the modern world um good news though uh, i i think my perspective at least and i'm sure some of you guys and certainly enthusiasts will agree with this um another story that broke last week was the a manufacturer's promising a process that can generate can manufacture cheaper oled tvs now this is great news if um, if it's actually true and if they actually can a increase the yields on these things and also produce uh, produce them for you know, less money because clearly one of the big problems with oleds had over the last couple of years and the reason why it's, its launch was delayed so much is because they are a bugger to make um and Obviously, being difficult to make makes them very expensive. Given that after a brief you know, time with them, I can see the potential in terms of picture quality. You know, what you really want now is them to be cheaper so that the uh, our, our golden future of 4K OLED uh, can come a lot sooner than, than it currently looks like it will be. Well, I, I'm I, anything that gets the price of, you know, it, what is, let's face it, the great white hope for, you know, pic, picture quality for enthusiasts um, down is good. Um I have to say, I, I've been uh, out with relatives for, for, for most of today, so I haven't done quite the research I wanted on this. Did it clarify, Steve, whether this was getting the price of OLED panels in general down or 1080p OLED, or or is it just it, hopefully the, the whole shebang, including the, the 4K OLED that we all, we all want to see and own? It didn't uh, mention actual resolution. I'm assuming that the process is the process, and whether you've got more pictures, I mean, it's a bit like the current... Um, 
crop of um, 4K TVs, they are basically LCD televisions. And I'm guessing that if you're making an LCD panel, but be it 1080p or 4K, the process is essentially the same. You just got more pixels. Mm. Um, that's not the case, by the way, with plasma. One of the reasons why we're not going to see any 4K plasmas is because it's physically very difficult to fit them onto that tiny little space. You basically have to make very, very large screens and it gets ridiculously expensive. Um, but assuming that the process is essentially the same, but they're just more pixels, um, there's no reason why, if their process works and it is cheaper, that they couldn't also apply that to 4K at some point. Now, don't forget that Panasonic have been talking about their printing process, which apparently is a lot more, a lot cheaper and a lot more reliable than the current process being used. So there's a possibility that they might also have a method for uh, delivering greater yields and cheaper OLED, OLED panels, and that would be 4K. So there is at least potential to see the prices drop relatively quickly. Uh, and, you know, if they can, you know, reduce the cost of production, then given what we've seen with the 4K panels, which is, you know, the prices have just plummeted on those in the last... Uh, I mean, I reviewed a 84-inch LG at this time last year. That was £23,000. Uh, I've currently got, and I'll talk about it in a minute, um, the 84-inch Toshiba, which is the same panel, basically, and that's now £11,000. So, I mean, it's still a lot of money, but uh, that's considerably less than it was a year ago. So, you know, if we can see that kind of precipitous drop in um, in prices for OLEDs once production gets up and running and, and, and are more reliable in terms of um, yield productions, then that could be good news all around. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, as I say, it, it, anything that helps me not have to own an LCD television as my main screen uh, is, is to be saluted and, and, and applauded. So, so come on, Jack. Uh, here, here, sir. Here, here. Make it work. Yeah, no, I just echo those sentiments. Cheaper is better, obviously. And, you know, I think take up of 4K, you know, as it gets cheaper, as it's easier to manufacture, and you see hopefully a little bit of. A recovery in the economy, you know, maybe the next five to ten years might be a bit rosier. Maybe it might take off at a quicker pace than some have projected. I know it's been a difficult post two thousand eight. It has been difficult, um, both in terms of the economy and in terms of the consumer transit industry generally. But um, I, I definitely think in the last year things seem to be picking up a bit. Um, I've seen, you know, I think more money being spent by uh, on on the PR marketing side. You know, slightly more expensive uh, sort of press events being arranged it looks as if there's a certain amount of i'm not saying it's booming again but it looks like maybe things are on, on the way back after the, you know, the dark times post the credit crunch in 2008 so yeah hopefully uh i mean let's be honest they desperately need uh, um oled to do well they need 4k to do well they need to gen, you know sell more tvs in what is already a saturated market and, and obviously 3d was a total bust so there's yeah, I mean, they desperately need this to work, and I obviously want that, want it to. Partly because if there's no manufacturers, there's not much for us to do either. So uh, let's hope, fingers crossed, it does does work, and they can reduce OLEDs cheaper. It'll be interesting to see what CES does. I think is CES yeah. will be CES will be the, uh, the 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 weather vane for 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 confidence in general, and and we'll see how it goes. Obviously, you'll be out there on the ground. Um, will. I'll be monitoring it from from a more hi-fi perspective, uh, where I have to say I, I echo your sentiments. I'm seeing products being released that have a certain boldness to them in terms of their pricing, in terms of their pitching, in terms of their positioning that we possibly haven't seen for a couple of years. So yeah, let's hope let's hope that that is the case and that OLED on the video side, whatever 4K transmission system we elect to use for actually viewing things on it. And from my perspective, you know, hopefully just a bit more in the way high res audio and things like that. It, it's it it starts to uh, make some progress after what have been some some very, very sort of dead years. Uh, I mentioned it a minute ago, but currently have the Toshiba 
84-inch uh, UHD, ultra-high-definition television, in for review. Uh, it's ludicrously big. Uh, we just managed to get it into the into the cottage when it arrived. Uh, it weighs a ton, and there was definitely a point at which you think, wouldn't it be cheaper just to buy a projector? Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's 84 inches and 11,000 quid, and I've also currently got Sony's 4K projector, EVW 500, which is only eight and a half thousand pounds, and that starts to look quite cheap compared to eleven thousand pounds. And obviously, you can go even bigger than eighty-four inches if you want to. Um, so, I've always slightly struggled to understand the logic behind buying a massive screen, really expensive television, when I think you can just get more bang for your buck, and in all honesty, a better image from uh, a projector. Different so, market. Different yeah, true. Totally different. Daytime viewing. Well, yeah, it's more the case that this is a fit and forget solution for someone for whom AV is an interest, but not a primary interest, potentially not even a sustained interest. You know, it's a, it's a fit and forget solution and it means everyone else in the household can do it. As Mark says, it doesn't need any any care, thought, attention or planning to make it happen. And it's just as happy watching you know, pointless at 5.30 in the afternoon when one of the children is doing it as it is actually sitting down for a, for a proper proper movie and letting it roll. Um, and I think actually firmly there's a, there's a place in, in the market for, for, for both of these solutions. I don't, I, I whilst you're in an unusual position to be able to compare them, I imagine that the people that actually do compare them can be counted on the fingers of one knee. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very good point, um, to be honest, Ed. Um, and I think but watching the TV, my, my view, I know we've mentioned this before on a number of occasions, and it is a very valid point that needs to be, needs to be I think, constantly people need to be reminded of, which is that the current crop of 4K televisions are, aside from their high resolution, in essence, just LCD televisions. This is an 84-inch edge-lit LED LCD TV. And, um, you know, therefore, all the problems that come with um, edge-lit LED LCD TVs are inherent in this television. In fact, if anything, they're magnified because obviously you're trying to spread the backlight across an 84, an 84 inch is a gigantic <laughs> screen area. Absolutely gigantic. Um, and, it, it, you know, it, it is very difficult. Although, in all fairness, actually, the, the, the backlight is relatively uniform, surprisingly, considering the sheer size of the screen. But, uh, you know, things like... Um, um, in local dimming and that sort of stuff, you know, you are getting a lot more haloing and it is a lot more obvious on a screen that big. Uh, and any kind of, any um, um, problems with the image, the source material or any issues with the scaling are obviously magnified as well just because of the sheer size of the television and size of the screen. But, um, I mean, given the massive difference in price between this and, and the LG from last year and that they are the same panel, uh, that is an, an impressive drop from 23,000 to just 11,000. And I know if you go down to the smaller screen sizes, I think the 58-inch uh, Toshiba, that's, that's that's going for about two and a half grand, which, you yeah. know, is, yeah. And the 65-inch uh, is 4,300, I think. So, um, you know, th those are the sort of prices where you could really, you know, that's directly competing with, large screen 1080p televisions um so it, it is amazing how quickly prices have dropped in 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 the, in the with 4k tvs which actually in many ways is quite positive because it does give oled a reason to exist in so much as if manufacturers want to sell a television which they actually have some chance of making any bloody money on they are going to have to look somewhere other other than lcd to make it happen yeah it's true it's very true 
I've got slightly phone to people to see, but they sent me the wrong bloody remote control for the television. Because I sat down last night to watch Doctor Who. I thought, great, I can watch it in 3D. And it being a 4K panel with passive 3D, the 3Ds should be excellent because you know, you've got a full 1080p image for each eye. There's absolutely no crosstalk, etc. I thought, brilliant, I can watch Doctor Who in, in 3D on this massive screen. And they said I couldn't get the, uh, the remote control didn't have a 3D button on it. So I couldn't actually activate and select side by side 3D. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we have the new Oxford English dictionary definition of a first world problem right there. (laughs) I I don't think you could do any better than that. We may as well close the book on it. That is the the, the most first world problem in the history of the I was incensed last night, I tell you. I was absolutely (laughs) livid because I went into the menus and I just could not get it in any way. I mean, I could get it in the 3D menu, but it just would not let me access the right part of the menu it was just greyed out and I couldn't do anything to get it to work and I was going in so good like I'm all ready with a kind of cup of tea and some biscuits I'm ready to watch Doctor Who I was absolutely livid I mean, the, the air was blue last night so I had to basically record the 3D broadcast and watch it in 2D which was like, terrible but um, you know watching it in 2D I was thinking oh there's loads of really cool stuff in there that's going to look great in 3D why can't I watch it in 3D and annoyingly I couldn't even just take the PVR into the into the lab, into the home cinema and use the Sony because Sony didn't send me any 3D glasses yet either for that I'm beginning to think there's a conspiracy to kill 3D because it's, it's just like frustrating when you can't actually watch something in 3D when you really want to and I'd just like to publicly thank the marketing teams for both of these august manufacturers for driving Steve into an apoplectic frenzy that is the little things in life that make it worthwhile yes I thank you all it's the additional, I'd got my cup of tea and biscuits ready. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, by the time you've found 3D, that's gone cold. It was a latte. Oh, dear. With espresso machines. I made a nice latte uh, and I had a couple of Jaffa cakes. It was, I was all ready to go. <laughs> um, I'm assuming out of, the, out of the three of us, I was the only one that watched it. Was I? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what I watched last night. I'd, actually, I spent more time listening to records because my son fell asleep downstairs and I just went upstairs and listened to some, listened to some music and it was sublime. Doc, literally, Doctor Who? Meh. No, sorry. Music last night was awesome. Lovely. Mark, did you uh, watch it? I, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't know it was on, I'm afraid. That's actually an achievement. It's, you, we, we, we've reached saturation level on... This... on yeah, there's been so much on. I, I tried watching a bit of the the lecture with um, Brian Cox, um, and I got through a bit of that. That was quite interesting. But no, when was this on? You'll have to fill me in. They, this time. hasn't received enough publicity, Steve. <laughs> Seriously, this has got to be the most plugged TV program in the history of television. I think mean, it was like broadcast simultaneously in 94 countries and in the cinema. It was almost impossible not to see it, but you two have managed. So congratulations. We found a way. <laughs> uh, anyway, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was quite good. Um, it had, um, had some nice little cameos in it and stuff like that. And it was a well, well, well put together and well thought out way of celebrating 50 years whilst also continuing the story and doing a bit of retcon as well, which I thought was quite good. So, um, yes, yeah, success there on the part of the BBC. And I hope, hopefully, uh, it come, actually, it's coming out in a week on Monday on 3D Blu-ray, which I'll probably pick up, actually. Stop, there are yeah. some excellent articles, uh, particularly one written by Simon Crust on the site right now about um, all different doctors and you know and um, who might be your favourite doctor. So worth reading if you are a Doctor Who fan or even just curious. It's actually a, a great piece that Simon's written. All right, that's it for hardware news. We'll be back in a minute with uh, with games news.
Okay, Mark, games news. Let's let's be honest, there's only one thing happening right now. So take us through it. How's how's the Xbox One launch gone? Uh, last Friday, um, I think it's gone pretty well. All in all, it's a new piece of technology. I mean, they've they've come out and said that they've sold over one million day one, so equaling uh, Sony's record with the PlayStation Four. Even though that is in, I think it's twenty two countries as opposed to just the USA and Canada for the PS Four. But lots of issues, lots of uh, kind of problems, lots of venting. The the first kind of big console launch, well, after PS Four in an age of social media and kind of instant consumer reaction. Um, there's a standard things, which obviously most people could have expected, which was that the servers would get absolutely hit because a day one update and, you know, a million people getting something, all of a sudden, you know, things are going to go awry and there'll be such a massive variety of variables. There's no way they could have, no testing would have been amply sufficient for that. Um, you know, a bit like GTA Online, as soon as the servers get pummeled, people get a little bit testy. Um, no two people really seem to have the same variety of, of problems, but there there are kind of common threads. Um, you've got basic hardware faults, which are, you know, some knocks that seem to indicate that things perhaps have been rushed into transit. They were, you know, rushing to keep up with demand. And we've got the standard, which are broken drives, that kind of thing, you know, nasty sounding, you know, grinding noises and the like, um, games that won't install, and a problem of the E100 uh, bricked console syndrome, which it means the update basically went awry, and so that's submit straight back to Microsoft to get fixed. Um, yeah, so pretty much standard what you'd expect from any kind of major hardware launch. Um, I'm assuming that most of those problems, yeah, are aren't on a wide scale. They're just on a relatively small scale. It's it's so impossible to tell with these things because it's. I mean, to this day, I don't know if we've ever had any kind of firm corroborated number for, say, the Red Ring of Death with the the Xbox 360. And so there's, you know, estimates out there as to what it's kind of at. You know, some people are saying around one percent, but. You know, with a certain amount of the issues, you just think, well, once the the console gets updated, then that's you know that's no longer actually a problem console. That's that could be you know network connection problems. That's not necessarily tying into those those numbers. Um, as far as actual hardware faults go, um, I know Steve on the games team had to uh, return his because of a, a drive that I think that wasn't installing games. Uh, but yeah, if you consider that the amount that they've actually sent out if you consider a million consoles uh the amount of youtube videos there actually are up there you'd imagine in this day and age of you know cameras on smartphones there'd be a hell of a lot more if it was you know massively widespread you know kind of five ten percent or something like that something ridiculous you don't hear from happy people they're too busy actually using the console <laughs> well true. this was that was the funny thing about, I mean, with the, the PlayStation 4 launch, which was you go on Amazon and there were no two, three, and four-star reviews. There were a bunch of five-stars and then a huge amount of one-stars. And so it's it's almost impossible to actually try and gauge how many people are actually happy. I mean, you know, I've heard back from a couple from the games team who've actually um, had problems with it. Leon? Well, I was going to, I was going to ask, sorry, uh, Mark, who has got the on the games team, who's got an Xbox One no. so far and what are their initial uh, impressions? Ma- Manny's got one, Steve's got one, Leon's got one, and I've finally caved and ordered one. (laughs) (laughs) 
Great. You took it took you two days. <laughs> I, I almost lasted. I, I almost got there. Um, but yeah, I, I was always going to cave. But no, the funny thing is, is that that almost exactly mirrors what a lot of people are saying, which is uh, I asked them all, you know, what they've been, what their first impressions are. And I've heard back from Manny. I've heard back from Steve. Um, both of whom had some kind of connection issues and Steve had a, had a hardware fault. I haven't heard back from Leon, and I know why, because he's playing the damn thing. Um, I've noticed, um, well, apparently uh, for launch, they've added um, YouTube and Love Film to the Xbox One platform. Is that correct? Uh, I believe so. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of stuff that's been, uh, you know, kind of at the last minute put there. Um, I don't think there's any iPlayer yet. Um, question marks as to whether that will ever make it if the BBC are going to stick by not allowing it to go behind a paywall. Yeah, I mean, it's, so far, the more the more things they get up there, the better. And, um, you know, thus far, the rest of the games team seem to be pretty pleased with how the user interface is and how it's kind of tying together as as a, a, a multimedia machine. I mean, Connect actually seems to have some kind of a of a use, which is nice. Oh, so it's not being universally slated then as being a complete waste of money and we object to having to pay for it in the first place? I, I, I think thus far the, the sentiment seems to be that it's it's kind of handy to have something extra there through which you can control the console. Um, whether that's actually worth the amount that it adds to the price is another thing and whether it's worth it from a gaming perspective is, you know... Um, up in the air, but uh, I, I did hit back. Actually, Steve reckons that the the smart glass functionality is pretty good um, for sending messages and things like that. And so that sounds like it, it might actually be very much responsive and might actually be integrated well. And what about the games themselves? What's the general feedback on the games? The games themselves are the one thing that no one's actually spoken about <laughs> when we've chatted about it. How how very twenty first century. Well, it, it's lots of things, you know, people pick up a controller and then start talking about the buttons being slightly different and that kind of thing and, and feedback. And, yeah, it is it is true. The last thing you're going to talk about, it seems, is the games because you've paid, I suppose, such a huge amount for it. And ultimately, the, the gameplay experiences are going to be so similar to what you're actually playing on, on previous generation consoles anyway. You know, there, there's not a great deal of... I'm trying to think of any kind of major kind of gameplay changes in this generation where there's been a sudden kind of, you know, shift. Uh, no, I don't think there has been anything. I do have to say that Xbox did score in terms of appealing to someone that wasn't intending to go anywhere near one of these for quite a while, actually featuring Forza in one of the TV spots. It, 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 it instantly elevated i mean don't get me wrong i'm sure that whatever incarnation of gran turismo makes it to to ps4 will be will be spellbounding and i've I've owned all the other ones so why break the habit of a lifetime but nothing in the ps4 ads uh for the uk anyway had me going god i could really do with that in my life whereas watching that mclaren p1 in the forza spot i thought do you know what that, that looks pretty awesome no and the ad that, campaign they did knock that out of the park they really did yeah um i mean but it, it, in so much as they've all but it, i mean obviously i it's weird how targeted it is because i'm not specifically aware of some of the other ones that they've mentioned but they've done a nice big spread and they've you know they've picked off a lot of different categories that people are fearsomely loyal to and it's i'm there looking at it and going do you know what 
we'll see how it goes. I mean, were it not for the fact that, you know, just for, just, just for amusement, I have made yet another ridiculous purchase more bullied into it by my wife this time but no there's no there's no immediate danger of me buying one of these consoles but xbox was in would be in first place just because that falls a spot no i I've, it's funny I've, I've heard a lot of people say exactly the same thing about that that particular advert which is as the car overtakes the mclaren overtakes and then it kind of skids around to a halt and the door opens it, it seemed to entice a lot of people who otherwise were kind of slightly on the fence yeah i I'd, 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 I'd agree with that Definitely for me. An email from Amazon quite soon telling you all about it. I'm just <laughs> so long as they're they don't target me for <laughs> yeah for Jenga games I've picked up in a supermarket, then I'm absolutely fine with it. <laughs> Do you, are you worried? It's like person of interest, and they've got all of the cameras in all of the world just but following you around. There were there were 17 pages of pens I looked through at the bottom, also like, and one Jenga, and I've never looked for that before online. That's what scares me. I'm more worried that it's all a little bit more Truman Show, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, we're just actors. I, yeah. can, I can assure you that I am not, not very good I, ones. I, yeah, I, 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 I'm a bit of a ham in that regard. Sorry. Right. Um, so that's it for the Xbox. Now, one of the stories that Mark put up last week, which, which I found um, not exactly surprising, but certainly um, interesting from the point of view of the PS4, is apparently it's costing Sony $381 to make it. And they're selling it in the States for 399 is it? Is that right, Mark? Uh, yeah. So they're making $18 on every one they sell. That's not counting, presumably, the amount of money they have to share with the shops uh, or retailers and also distribution costs to get them there. So I'm guessing that basically means they're losing money on every single one of these they sell. Yeah, well, that, that would, that's the kind of standard model that Sony have always gone with, which is to, to take some kind of a, a hit. I mean, they took a massive hit on the, on the PS3, but in general, they tend to take a small hit on their consoles, you know, at the least. Um, yeah, this IHS research firm said that though, that basically covers parts and assembly costs. So it's, it's all estimates and, you know, you can quibble with it and say, well, how do you know how much they've, they've brokered for mass buying of components and the like? But... You know, it, it sounds like a pretty reasonable estimate. And uh, I think the, one of the things that, that struck me out of that more than anything was the question of the controller, how much that cost, $18 to build, and it's it's selling for kind of, you know, $50, $60. And if you consider that that's the kind of thing that often people will pick up with a console, an extra controller, well, you're, you're probably making it back right there, you know. That's before that's you... That's always you're the fact- way, isn't it? Peripherals, that's the peripheral stuff. It's the stuff where they make the money back and get the margin. Yeah, well, I mean, the Xbox Ones, the, Microsoft is still going with, with things like the Play and Charge kit. Um, Sony with their, with their Vita still kind of... Uh, in fact, yeah, no, they stuck with proprietary memory in that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Sony have always done that with handhelds, and so there, there are a variety of tricks to try and make back that money. Um, so I don't think anyone's going to be, you know, crying that Sony are going to be bankrupt or anything like that. But it's, yeah, it, it's it's nice to see that it's, she would say, a, a pretty sound fiscal approach okay right well that's it for games news so we're back uh, with tech news actually this next uh, tech news story could have gone under games news i decided to put it under tech news to pad out tech news a little bit more than just one other story uh but it's uh, logitech who've got uh, basically what amounts to a controller that you attach to your iphone to turn it into uh, well, basically a console controller um Mark, what do you think about this? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Would it be of interest to you? 
Uh, I've got to say, no, not really. There have been a variety of these kind of things, and, and you can, in fact, link, link a uh, controller to, to devices and the like. Um, and generally, they've fallen flat in the same way that kind of dedicated Android gaming tablet devices and the like. They they all kind of they're all touted with this this grand idea of trying to break in, trying to get across that divide between traditional gamers and people who just you know game on their phones and to try and get those that market that the the people who spend great money on games are are the kind of core audience um and trying to get them to actually you know download huge amounts on phones and the like and to try and i don't know build up some kind of market awareness there i, I don't know what it is but these devices they never really work you know I, i'm sorry the, the the whole point of mobile gaming is the fact that usually they've got stripped down controls and so they're they're tailored for this for the whole point of that you know the touch interfaces is part of the reason that a lot of people gravitate towards them so now you're adding extra buttons so you've in fact pared something down and then you're adding something back to it it, it just seems like a, a bit of a bizarre mix yeah it's well, I mean, very can... specialized isn't it i mean let's face it it pre- looking at the photos it pretty much doubles the size of the device it's 90 pounds and i could you know as a self i'm self-employed and I work in the technology industry. If you met me for a meeting and I I was in a rush and you saw my phone and it had that on it, you'd think, oh, well, it's a bit zany. He might have it for review, so on and so forth. If you're in any way a serious working adult and they see you with that, especially if it's a company phone, you're in <laughs> you're in some you're in some, 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 some explaining to do by that stage it's i don't know if so if i was was able to to somehow blag one i'm sure it would be delightful but uh, i don't you, you make a valid point Ed. it makes the device twice as big and therefore you know you get to the point where you might just go and get a vita or something like that i was going to say for, yeah for 85 quid if you just add a bit more and considering the size of it just whack a, a Vita in your bag and you're playing on a little yeah. OLED screen and, and you've got far better games there anyway. Yeah. Vaguely, I don't know, it's the um, the pad gives it an ever so slightly Atari Lynx-esque plot. Yes. No, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> and I have to say, I had a soft spot for that. As a left-hander, I felt that Atari's uh, screen, uh, screen flip for, for us, our south pause was was a wonderful thing, but uh, I don't know if this thing does that. So uh, you know, that, but it just I'm just looking at it and thinking that really looks like my old links. Didn't Mark's article say that it's it may not be supporting the the iPhone five C? Well, it's announced for the iPhone five and the iPod Touch fifth generation. It doesn't mention the iPhone C, so it may or may not support it. It does require a iOS seven. See, I'd be surprised if it didn't support the five C because I mean, essentially, it's the same size as the five, isn't it? I was going to say, if you're only tailoring it to those devices and, you know, it's only iOS 7 and it's £85, sure, that's got to be a tiny market, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I imagine you're probably right on that front. Um, although I do notice there is a Fast and Furious 6 game, which I might have to get for my iPhone. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, OK, well, that rounds up tech news. We'll be back with movie news. Right, can one of you ask the question, please? Steve, what's at the cinema? That wasn't the question, Ed. The question is, what's at the cinema? Steve, 
I wanted to mix it up a bit. Do you really want right, to fine. No, no, that's fine. You mix it up all you want, mate, because only three Just of them. Just answer and say, anyway. oh, I haven't seen anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have. I have. I went out on Thursday night. I saw The Hunger Games Catching Fire, which I have to say uh, was excellent. Uh, now, Hunger Games, which I can't believe was only two years ago now, um, was one of those sort of surprise films. You know, I knew nothing about the books whatsoever. Never even heard of them. Uh, went to go and see the movie. Totally you know, went in totally blind, didn't think about it at all. I thought it was really good. I mean, admittedly, you know, you could argue about it's got elements of battle royale, et cetera, in it. But I just thought that as as a story, it, it was interesting. It had I like the political, you know, the, the backdrop of politics and, and totalitarian state. I thought that Jennifer Lawrence is a superb actress, and I thought she performed really well. That the, the actual Hunger Games tournament was well done. Had a great supporting cast of people like um, Elizabeth Banks and uh, and um, Woody Harrelson. And overall, it was one of those films that was vastly superior to what it should have been. It was much, much better than I could possibly have imagined it would be. And un unbelievably, Catching Fire is even better than The Hunger Games. They take it to a whole new level. It doesn't just repeat itself. It's not, I mean, I know obviously it's based upon on the original source novel, but they've managed to, to, to you know, take The Hunger Games, and it starts off basically where the previous film ended, with them going on a victory tour after they've her and um, Peter had survived this previous tournament. And then you know it, snow it snowballs from there in terms of the uh, the, the political backdrop, you know, the, the sense that her victory has, has given people hope, um, and the, the government itself obviously wants to eliminate her because they feel she's a threat, um, and therefore they manipulate uh, another set of games. But this time the games involve victors from the previous Hunger Games, um, and so there is a, a Hunger Games if you like later in the film. But it's it's quite long; it's about two hours and twenty minutes long, but and it takes a good hour and twenty minutes before we even get to the to the the next Hunger Games, if you like. But at no point do you feel as if they're dragging it out. In fact, if anything, that they're expanding the universe. It's, it's a bit like, it's very much like The Empire Strikes Back in some respects, because it's it's kind of obviously, it, it takes off after the first film. It doesn't have, exactly have an ending. It kind of ends um, in a way that, you know, what, where it's going to happen next, where it's going to go to, but it, it leaves a lot of characters' fates, you know, unknown to a certain degree. Um, so in that sense, it is sort of a middle film of, of what is well would be a trilogy, but actually it's going to be four films because they're doing that usual trick now that Potter's made made popular of taking the last book and doing it into two, making it into two movies in order to, to milk it, milk the cash cow as much as possible. And it is a cash cow. Um, I mean, the previous Can I just ask, games, uh, yeah. on that on that subject of it being a, a trilogy and they're like, did they film this all in one or was it separate productions? Oh no, no, it's been done separately. Yeah being done separately i mean this, i have to say jennifer lawrence is second only to the rock extra, one of the busiest people in hollywood she she has she a is, phenomenal work rate and she's also extremely good actress and her star is rising since the hunger games obviously she's won the, the oscar since then for um silver lines playbook um and the original film made I think, over 400 million in the US and about 600 million worldwide. It was a pretty big hit, more, way bigger than Lionsgate thought it would be. Um, the Hunger Games Catching Fire opened on Thursday worldwide. And as of today, it's already made 300 million so um, worldwide. So it, it looks like that's going to eclipse the previous film and do very well for itself, uh, which I think it deserves to. You see, it's intelligent um, filmmaking. I think Gary Ross said he didn't want to make the sequel because he didn't think it was a, a long enough production schedule to do it justice. Although I've got to say, I think that uh, that Francis Lawrence has done a fantastic job. He's, he's taken the film to another level. Obviously, it's got a bigger budget because the first film was successful. Bigger budget. Um, it's expanded the universe, if you like, or the, or the you know, the, the, within within the film itself, um, you get more of a, of a flavour of the capital, more of a flavour of the politics and the background. They brought in some great new actors. They, they brought in... Um, 
They brought in Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, who's excellent in it. Uh, you know, never feel like he's just sort of slumming it. They, they, all the actors in it: Stanley Tucci, Lenny Kravitz, um, Donald Sutherland, uh, Woody Harrelson. They all they all bring their A game to the film, even though you know you might think they could just think, well, this is like you know pulpy, silly, silly material. But but no, oh, they, they, they give it a degree of reality. Did you say Lenny Kravitz? Yes. Very good, isn't it? He plays. Uh, he's in the first one too. He plays the costume designer. Um, he does the costumes for the sort of you know the public appearances of the characters, and he's great in it. Um, I didn't actually recognise him in the first film. I thought he looks strangely familiar. He's a little chubby in the face these days. I've got to say. Uh, but anyway, yes, it's a great film. It's uh, it's um, he manages. He does, what the director does do quite well is make it. Um, sh- in the first film, um, Gary Ross you know, to try and get around the problem of, of having kids killing each other without getting a higher rating. He used a lot of shaky cams, so you couldn't really see what was going on, which I find a bit annoying. This one, um, Francis Lawrence does manage to shoot the, the action scenes without needing to resort to that, and and sort of editing it in a way that you know you don't really see the blood or the gore or the, or the actual moment of violence, but it still has an impact. Um, and I think that's actually quite clever of him because it means you know you can still get the uh, the, the darkness of the film without needing to you know, jeopardise its rating. But yeah, no, it's a really good. I think I'd give it a good nine, eight or nine out of ten. I think it was a superb film. Great. It's just about follow-up. marks for marks out of ten. You, you've, I mean, as I say, you've been all over the place. I mean, the the uh, the counselor or whatever it was last week, you know, had you spitting fire, and now you're catching fire and loving this. And I don't know. And you still haven't seen the One Direction movie. I just. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that was, well, the, that was the, the one we were all hanging in for, Steve. So. I thought everyone was waiting for the review of um, Theodore Rex. That as well. But that's no, we'll wait thing. for that in 4K. <laughs> uh, right, so that's Catching Fire. Um, yeah, if you're a fan of the previous film, or, or I, well, ideally go and see the previous film, watch it on Netflix, it's on Netflix, um, before you go and see Catching Fire, because you really do need to have seen the first film. It does kind of follow on and with this one continuous story. You could so even see the read first the book, film. you know. If the fact uh, yeah, you could read the book. Um but, you know, any adaptation that's done well, you don't have to have word the source material. And, and generally, you know, films are very different things things from books. So I found a lot of the Potter movies were really difficult to watch because they just followed the book so slavishly. And by far and away, the best Potter film is the one that Alfonso Cuaron made, where he basically didn't follow the book slavishly and actually brought some imagination and wit and charm and, and, and you know, and cinematic ability to actually making a real film. And that's the sure. one Potter film you could watch in isolation. It still stands up as a movie. But, uh, yeah, I, I, anyway, um, if you've seen The Hunger Games, definitely go and see Catching Fire. I think you would really enjoy it. Uh, if you haven't seen The Hunger Games, check out The Hunger Games first and then see Catching Fire. But, yeah, a, a really, really good movie. Now, other news. Uh, Sony, Sony are cutting the budgets for their film production unit. Now, this is really sort of going back to something we discussed quite a few times in this podcast, which is the ridiculous amount of money that modern films are costing. Uh, and clearly Sony have realised this. And uh, have been forced to sort of cut back on their, uh, on basically what is Sony Studios, after some fairly large budget cock-ups on their part. One of which uh, is After Earth. Now, After Earth, actually, the review of the Blu-ray has just gone up on, on the site by Alan McDermott, and he was less than, uh, uh, than um, sort of kind about the film itself. Apparently, fantastic picture quality and sound quality on the disc. Bloody awful movie. Um, but it's, it's big budget bombs like that that have basically forced uh, Sony's hand, and now they've they've cut back the. Uh, the amount of money they're actually allocating to the film production unit uh, by about, uh, how much did they cut it back by? I think it's like 150 million, which to be fair, isn't a massive difference because that's like one film budget. But I think they're also reducing the number of films that they're making uh, in a year, which I think, again, goes back to something we've also talked about, which is that uh, 2015 was looking like a, a, a summer when there were going to be way too many big budget films that you know coming out at about the same time. 
that you know you just knew some of them were going to have to, to tank. And I noticed that a few films now have had their release schedules moved. So, so for example, Star Wars is now going to be opening in December and not in its usual summer month launch, uh, opening window. Again, I think partly because they need more production time, but also why not move it out of that you know, busy sh- summer schedule? Uh, it, it is going to be absolutely... Uh, we, I, I don't think that there's any avoiding the fact that there are too many very large blockbusters in production at the moment for them all to well even for actually the standard percentage of them to be a success let alone all of them um and uh, all all this is is essentially if you like putting in a tiny airbags worth of precaution whilst hurtling towards a solid object at 150 miles an hour there's still going to be a bloodbath gonna start next summer and it's going to work all the way through 2015 for a lot of stuff where it's just costing too much money to produce films which are of less than average you know then they, they they have a reasonable pull but they're not the sort of they're not epoch making they're not the everyone has to go and see this film moments and yet they've got budgets larger than films that did were like that like titanic etc so yeah it's, it's going to be going to be pretty messy i think this is a, a wise move whether it's too little too late we'll, we'll have to see yeah i i, I think yeah, I'd echo those sentiments. It's it's a kind of it's it's almost like a gambling cycle where you're getting a lot of slightly similar spectacle films, and sooner or later there's the one that just absolutely tanks, and no one wants to be that studio, that one, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. But it, it seems inevitable that there's going to be a bit of a crash. I mean, I mean most... surprisingly with After Earth, because that was a Will Smith movie, and Will Smith was one of those stars. You can, you know, you take the bank, you know, yeah, he'll open at anything, but even that bombed. So yeah, it was M. Night Shamalamalamalam. Yes, he, I think that was probably he, the he, he, and, that, and that, it had his son in it. I have to say, having what was the what was the one where trees were killing people? Uh, the uh, the happening. And, yeah, I, ever since that, he's on he's on my my McCarthy esque blacklist. I'm sorry, I'm not watching anything else he's producing ever after that. These trees are deadly. Brilliant. Um, was it the trees but, in the end? I didn't even get that far in that. Uh, <laughs> I, I hate to break really? it to you, but yes, I'm afraid it was, and not Zoe Deschanel's Fringe. Oh. Um, I will not have a word said against Zoe Deschanel. She's but, I love Zoe Deschanel. So that's the one with Mark Wahlberg, isn't it? Yes. See, the only reason I know that is because <laughs> the gif of Mark <laughs> Wahlberg staring out in a confused manner just gets posted around the internet so often that that's that's known more than the actual film itself. But I mean, it, going back, dra- dragging this tenuously back on subject. Subject. I mean, I for the because I didn't get to watch it when it was in the cinemas um, for various reasons, time constraints, other other issues. Didn't get to watch Pacific Rim in the cinema. I, I bought it on Blu-ray. I bought it as partly for sort of review purposes and so on and so forth. And uh, I absolutely adored that. I mean, admittedly, I have a a, a very soft spot for giant robots. Always have done. Um, but I mean, in terms of success terms, that made what looks like a busload of money. But even then, it only counts as once you actually start looking at distribution and all on all the other bits and bobs. It only counts as a just about break even, and that's yeah, yeah. that's so, something is catastrophically wrong. And there's going to be and when when you've got a relatively good film. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not for a second pretending that Pacific Rim is Oscar winning material. Although the soundtrack is awesome, but um, it just it, when you've got something which is actually quite a tight, cohesive 
good popcorn film just about recovering its money uh when you look at what's coming up over the next couple of years oof, that's going to be that's going to be painful well I, I think i mentioned this statistic before but it's terrifying to be honest it, in order to break even i mean as it happens it made a ton of money in the end it made like 1.6 billion worldwide but in order to break even the avengers had to make over 800 million it had to make a billion dollars just to like go in a profit basically um that's that's just I mean, absolutely terrifying, isn't it? When you consider that, that's how much money is being involved. Because, like you say, Ed, it's not just production costs of the film; it's also all the marketing costs to go with it. Then they have to give some of that money to the studio, to the um, cinema chain. So, ultimately, you know, if a film costs two hundred million, it needs to make four to five hundred million just to break even. Um, and and I think uh, you know some of them are costing two hundred fifty to three hundred million, which means by that rule, they've got to make six, seven hundred million, which makes you know one of the most successful films of all time. Just yes. to break even. Now that kind of uh, that kind of um, economics is not sustainable. Yeah, and um, we've got we've got a lot a, a number of things where that's you know it's like they're having to to bank on that. I mean, and obviously the Lone Ranger is the if you like that might be the first of these. I mean, admittedly that had disaster written on it from the very beginning. What about John Carter? Well, well, John Car- Disney have been unlucky because the last two years they've had the two big bombs. The thing is, though, that actually John John Carter is is a weird one because it's more a case that it's a bit incomprehensible. It's not actually a bad film. I like it. I thought it was yeah. a good movie, but unfortunately, uh, but, and also word of very- word of mouth sank that. Whereas the Lone Ranger deservedly sank. It's just awful. You don't spend a quarter of a billion dollars on a bloody comedy western. You just don't. <laughs> <laughs> unless you want to lose a quarter of a billion dollars which they yeah. did but yeah. uh well yes so so um, there you go yeah see i um, thought a few years ago that the, the big model was going to be following stuff like lord of the rings which was tying in production so no longer just looking at solitary films and then making sequels you know in the the superhero mold but in fact trying to roll them all into one and then you know amalgamate those costs in some some manner but it just seems perhaps that's that's well, too great to do that mark though you'd need yeah there's two problems with that one is in order to do that you'd have to have multiple scripts written in order to shoot so with the lord of the rings for example obviously you already had three books in which to base your screenplays that made more sense to, to shoot them as one but it is a massive gamble because if what would have happened if fellowship of the ring had bombed you know new world would have been sorry not new world new line would have been stuck with two more films in the bag uh, you know and and no one wants to see them and, and they've already spent all this money so it is a big risk to shoot back-to-back films for for a staggered release um but there are obviously economies of scale that come with doing that you're absolutely right but uh, yeah, you think someone could do that rather than spending a quarter of a billion though sure james cameron well, you know, you think that but they're, they're shooting The Hobbit back to back, like three movies. But so far, I believe he spent five hundred and fifty million and counting. So uh, it ain't cheap that way either, by the sounds of it. Yeah, but to be fair, that's because he's got a blank checkbook, hasn't he? Well, Cameron's worse. He's he's doing three Avatar movies and he's spending one billion dollars. Let me just say that again, if everyone didn't hear that. One billion dollars. I mean, it's just that's just. Uh, and will that, that be the one that breaks it? Put that into perspective. India is sending a probe to the moon <laughs> for less than a hundred million dollars. You could no, go to, to Mars. Mars. Sorry, not, yeah, they're going to Mars. Forty-five million, to, wasn't it? Uh, Seventy-five, Mars. I thought, was it all up. 
in terms of not just not just the launch cost in terms of actually then actually telling and getting data back once it's there but 75 million so one tenth of an avatar movie um i thought to mention by the way um that with the hunger games catching fire kaz harlow's review has just gone up on the site as well so please give that a read he, he's as enthused about it as i was um but yeah it's a, it's a really good um, rundown of the movie um no spoilers just but a, a nice little um uh, review of, of the film itself uh right finally finishing off uh, Doctor Who was not the only 50th anniversary this weekend because on Friday it was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And now I'm a bit of a conspiracy nut. <laughs> I've been really into the Kennedy assassination for a long time, at least 25 years. And uh, there's been a, quite a few movies that have covered uh, the assassination one way or the other. Uh, I'm thinking here about Executive Action, which was made in the 70s and was the first film I saw which suggested the idea of a conspiracy. Uh, obviously, there was Oliver Stone's JFK, which is kind of like, you know, the, the Citizen Kane of conspiracy films. Um, there was a, a smaller film made at the same time as JFK called Ruby, which kind of looked at Jack Ruby's character um, and starred Sheridan Fenn as a, as a go-go dancer and Danny Aiello as Jack Ruby. Um, then more recently, uh, one was shown on actually on Saturday night, last night, on Channel 4 called Killing Kennedy. And there's also Parkland, which has just opened at the cinema. And it's been interesting that, that if you look at the older films, like Executive Action and JFK specifically, they're very much of the, you know, of the conspiracy theorist movies, talking about you know a big conspiracy to kill Kennedy and you know Oswald not necessarily being involved, or if he was involved, he was involved in part of the conspiracy. But it seems like things have gone full circle now, and now it's gone back to the basically Oswald did it. Um, and you know, having studied the assassination quite a bit over the years, I've even been to Dealey Plaza. Uh, I, too, have come to the conclusion, ultimately, that Oswald did it. I mean, it's the only explanation for all the forensic evidence there is. Um, and unfortunately, when, when you watch someone like JFK, much as I love JFK, I think it's an absolute masterwork of of, um, of a manipulation on the part of Oliver Stone in terms of mixing real footage with fake footage and, and misinformation and some facts. Didn't Brilliantly he done. basically say that it was it was his response to, like, the Warren Commission? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it was almost like his own propaganda. Yeah, exactly what he did say. And, and and it is very much a conspiracy propaganda. But unfortunately, now I know so much about the assassination and the real facts. And I, I know how much of that film is total fabrication, just totally made up, uh, not a shred of evidence whatsoever to support a lot of the accusations that Stone makes. I mean, even the magic bullet theory, which, you know, in the film, famously in, in JFK, where he goes to the left you know, and talks about the bullets moving you know, to left and right and zigzagging didn't happen because of the way they were sat in the cars. In fact, if you think about it logically, once the bullet went through Kennedy, it could only go into, into Governor Colling. There was nowhere else for it to go. Um, and, you know, the more you think about it, the more you think, well, actually, and, there is a, and I know you pointed this out, Mark, there's a slightly bad taste, I think, game called JFK Reloaded, where you could basically shoot him from the book depository uh, over and over again. And I did play that for a healthily long time. Uh, I got quite good at killing Kennedy, actually. I must admit, I was I was getting a lot of headshots in, the, in that game. Um, I'd just like to say a good evening to our friends at GCHQ. Um, I'd like to make it very clear <laughs> that I've never played this game, so um, you can you can go after my colleagues and uh, and and you know ha have a quick chat with them. I'm but, good, thanks. So, I'd love what to see what you your guys? recommended products are tonight, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Manu Kakano rifle, uh, telescopic, telescopic sight, rifle, uh, pistol. <laughs> Copy of Militant Worker. <laughs> um, right, guys, so have you, are you conspiracy or lone nut theorist? Let's be very clear about this. I, w I don't want there to be any doubt about this at all. Conspiracy theorists are 
just it's it's a desperate desire to believe that there is order in a world which is unfair and entirely random but that's what they want you to believe i won't (laughs) mock i won't mock you for it but i won't humor you i'm sorry it's as simple as that when you look at the availability of data and the all the increasing impossibility of keeping things secret. I mean, JFK actually isn't the one that winds me up. The 9-11 conspiracy theorists can get bent. I've got to be very clear about this. Um, You know, when we look at the, the, the the fragility of secrecy in the 21st century, the idea of keeping any organized conspiracy a secret for any length of time is so bewilderingly impossible that you are asked, you know, it boils down to Occam's razor. The simplest outcome is, by and large, the most likely. There are no exceptions to this rule. Sorry. Um, I, I enjoy reading them. I, I enjoy visiting conspiracy theory forums. And there was a wonderful thread that ran to back when we were actually chopping threads at their thousand post limits. There is it's archived. If you've got a spare afternoon, the conspiracy theory thread that ran in our very own general chat forum was about as much fun as I've had with my clothes on for some time, um, just because it brings out people from the woodwork. Um, and it, you know, it gets to the stage where you're sort of playing conspiracy theory bingo for <laughs> all, all of the phrases to go through. And I was down everything except international Zionism. And I said, I'm down everything except international Zionism. And um, I got you know rebuked. Oh, we're not all like that, so on and so forth. And literally four pages later, someone just weighs in and goes, you do know that everything is controlled by the Zionists. And it's like, yes, <laughs> I've got a full house. <laughs> so, My favourite conspiracy theory is the one about titanic wasn't the ship that sank it was the it was the um olympic <laughs> the thing is though that you actually that's an easier one that that's actually easier to get your head round than almost anything else i mean it's certainly easy in, in many bizarre and bewildering ways easier to do than um you know diana <laughs> just for those who were, were wondering what happened in this conspiracy theory the olympic was damaged in an accident uh, which is true, um, but the conspiracy theory is that they then refitted the Olympic to, to, to be the Titanic and refitted the Titanic to be the Olympic and then deliberately scuttled the Olympic in order to claim the insurance money back, um, but obviously cocked it up and killed worse people at the no, same they time. No, it's just... <laughs> it's still bollocks, but, it, but it, in many ways it's more well-crafted bollocks. <laughs> the thing is that when I've you have actually this, time for it. <laughs> when genuine conspiracies have actually been uncovered, i.e. say, for example, going back to the beginning of this podcast with LG Gate, but with Watergate, I mean, that was a genuine conspiracy. But the fact is that everyone involved in it was utterly incompetent and couldn't keep a secret. Nice. And that's actually the way reality is. No one, I mean, we didn't, the people that think we didn't go to the moon. Are you actually trying to tell me that that many people could keep a secret that big and that the Russians wouldn't have let on about the fact that they knew it? I mean, you know, it's just like, get real. Where did you think those massive rockets were going then? Well, it goes back to that Mitchell and Webb sketch. We still need to build the massive rocket. Ah, well, we were kind of hoping that we were going to have make the saving on that. So after that, it's just catering costs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Mark, what I, about you? Are you, uh, you into the conspiracy theory? Um, not greatly, but I have to say there was a, a, there have been a bunch of the kind of JFK documentaries on recently. And the, the theory that, in fact, the third shot might have come from one of the, the kind of secret servicemen's rifle <laughs> accidentally, I actually thought that wasn't too bad. 
that, that, that would happen if I was playing him in a game. That's, that would definitely be the case. Yeah, but that because it, but it would kind of explain why, should we say, you know, the brain went missing and why there would be kind of what seemed like a half-assed cover-up with, you know, evidence going missing. But at the same time, every other rational piece of evidence points towards the fact that he was clearly shot by Lee Harvey Oswald. I, so I think it's, it's more to project that actually he was in Texas and every other person is armed. You know, uh, as you say, yes, it's possible it came from a Secret Service rifle. It's possible it just came from, you know, someone randomly <laughs> discharging their I, fire. I tell you my theory, my theory is that when Kennedy was assassinated, they, they, they launched the Warren Commission to investigate his uh, assassination, yes? Now, the Commissioner Warren investigated Jack the Ripper. In my opinion, the man on the grassy knoll was actually a very, very old Jack the Ripper. It was his last killing. He did Kennedy and then he disappeared off. That's the way it happened. Oh, time travel. Well, no, it doesn't be time travel. Because 1888 to 1963, what's that? That's about 70. So he could have been about 90. How? It could, it could, have, happened. It could have happened. Right, and on that note... <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell. Right, that's it for the podcast this week. My thanks to Mark Botright. So, now it ends. And Ed Selly. You can't drown, you fool, you're immortal. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can bookmark avperformance.com for the latest reviews, news and videos. Plus, why not leave us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed the show? Please, God, we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, I'm Steve Withers. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.